0: Are the stories in the
1: Bible true?
2: What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses, which give intricate detail to
1: the stories in the Bible?
2: Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to?
0: Join us the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern time on the Endeavor Freedom YouTube channel for our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.
2: All right, Shalom and welcome
0: everybody to another awesome episode of ask me anything with author and researcher gary wayne this is episode 17. i can't believe what's been going on for 17 months that we've had you gary it's, it's about a year and a half now and of course uh, we did miss you last month and we missed you at the conference as well we pray that everything with uh, you and everything that's going on up there in canada is you know becoming better and uh, the most high willing you know everything is going to resolve according to his plan and we know that his plan is great and his ways are above everything that we can comprehend. But uh he is love and he is good. So that's that's my faith and prayerfully uh we'll meet in that kingdom if we aren't able to see you next year for the conference that's gonna <laughs> be coming again. Uh, so how have you been?
1: I've been uh swamped, uh busy <laughs> uh with a series of things as I I think people know that you know the first issue was Canada has not got their borders open to the US and vice versa for international travel except for, you know, exceptional circumstances and it comes with a significant punishment like five years ban and five thousand dollar fine if you get caught violating wow. it. And then my brother died and I'm also the executor for it and that's a bit oh, of yeah. a We're sorry a a real mess and it's across provinces and then I've got quarantine issues every time I travel including you know trying to get into the bank and things and and then at the end which I knew uh, the month which I knew was coming but it's been a little bit more difficult than uh, I would have thought but uh, my wife has just gone through surgery so I'm preoccupied with that as well and, and helping to nurse her back to health so things wow. are <laughs> so September has been an interesting month but I'm starting to get my head above water here and uh, so I'm starting to uh, do shows again and I'm doing getting caught up on my emails that uh, are backlog because my full attention was elsewhere mm-hmm. and I'm starting to do social media again so I'm, I'm starting to move forward
0: well, we definitely did miss you, and I guess it's totally understandable with all that you've gone through. That's To say that you were swamped is, to put it very lightly, and I can't believe, you know, how, I guess you would say, liberal Canada is about the, the whole COVID response. And Oh, man, I, I'm just so thankful to live in a city where they don't force me to wear a mask, they don't force us to social distance. I don't know if you heard, but... Uh, you know we we scheduled the conference before march obviously because that was originally when it was going to take place and we had to postpone it but we stayed at the same conference center that we had planned on for march and it happened Mm -hmm. to be one of the only places that would allow over you know a a large gathering with no mask requirements no social distancing requirements even the cops uh, got called at our baptisms and they came out and they didn't have masks on and they they kinda of protected us while we uh, finished up with the baptisms. It was it was an awesome experience, but we definitely missed
1: you. Excellent. Well I sure I was sure missing being there and it was such a extraordinary uh Good roster of speakers there, and there were so many people that were hoping that I was, I was going to come that had made contact with me, and you know, even to the point where you know the sudden death of my brother prevented us from for me getting to a location where I could do a proper uh, video for the conference because of upload capacity. You know, you need to do a you know a very high upload, and mm. hotel Wi-Fi, I don't think it's that that quality. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Well, before we get into the questions, could you let everybody know where they could find more about your research and your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and how they could get in touch with you, even though it might take a month or so to (laughs) to, to respond to your email?
1: Yes, as soon as I can respond, I will. I'm, I'm about midway through September, so I'm hoping that the next week I can uh, catch up on the emails. But best way to get a hold of me is through my website at the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Uh, that's Genesis6Conspiracy with the number 6.com, Genesis6Conspiracy.com. And on that website... I have a generous excerpt of all of the chapters of my book, so you'll get a good feel for it to see whether or not it's a book that, that is for you. And uh, on there, there's also an ability to buy a signed copy, and you can also link over to the Kindle edition from, from that buy page or over to amazon.com or amazon.ca and over to barnesandnoble.com. And it's available on most online bookstores, and if the store isn't stocking it if you want to stock a uh, your local bookstore, which I completely encourage, they can bring it in through uh, uh, Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania because that's who distributes the book for my for my publisher. And on the website is uh, a contact the author, and it's you know the Genesis Six Conspiracy at gmail.com. That's the connection that you're going to have on the website. So if you want a document um, on a subject that I'm talking about. Or uh, you want to ask me a question or you want to make some comments, best way to get a hold of me, or on Facebook under Gary Wayne and or at Twitter at Gary Wayne63 at Gary Wayne63. No matter what, I will get back to you unless I've missed the or lost the message somewhere somehow. So uh, which does happen, but it doesn't happen too often.
0: Excellent. We appreciate all that information. Uh, just to start off. With my own question, how many times do people say that you must be an inside man because you were born in
1: 63?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, people Uh, love to hold on to those little things. Like We had a speaker that came to our conference, and his name was Zach Mason, and everybody was like, oh, he's an inside man.
1: Yeah, so I'll i let you I'll let you in on a secret. That's not my birth year. Uh, that's oh, a, okay. a year. That's a year I use in public, so I don't give uh, some it. of my enemies and identity people an right opportunity on. to. And I hadn't made that connection. Uh, I was more like six three, as in Genesis six three, mm, and the hundred and twenty years is kind of what I was thinking. So, <laughs> right on. Well, but, I, but but hey, I um, hats off to somebody else who made a connection like that. So, <laughs> I was curious because we get
0: reached out all the time about random little things that will get yeah. put out. And I figured somebody's probably reached out to you, if not dozens of people, about your yeah. yeah. email address. But, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So thank yeah. you for explaining that. Um, yeah. And we won't ask when your birthday was, probably in the 80s
1: um uh, no I'm a little older than that
0: <laughs> all right well we'll keep it at that somewhere right before the 80s uh, but we'll get started in a quick prayer and then we'll get into the questions no
1: actually nowhere close to the 80s before 63 to be exact I mean <laughs> it's even before that so
0: <laughs> you look very young and healthy I'm, I'm glad to see your smile and your complexion you look very healthy even though you've been going through uh so much and I know the audience can't see you because when we share our, our video feeds for for whatever reason it always uh, gets stuck but i can see you and you look great gary and i can just give Thank a too. report to everybody who's listening in uh you look great and healthy and we'll, we'll definitely have to keep you in our prayers but we'll say a quick prayer real quick before we get into the questions for tonight so father we just humble ourselves before you most high our creator and our savior we just Thank you so much for life. We thank you for the opportunity to join together here with Brother Gary Wayne. We thank you so much for uh, giving him an anointing and a calling to serve you in the way that uh, he does, Father, in researching and in putting the pieces together of the prophecy and the histories and allowing people to see that your word is truth. And prayerfully through his work, many will come to know you, Father, and to know of your incarnation into the world and the messiah and the anointed one who was born of a virgin and who died on a cross and who defeated death and we thank you so much father for for your blood that was poured out for the new covenant that you've made with us that we would have salvation through you and the forgiveness of our sins we thank you so much father for your goodness you're so loving and so kind to us and so merciful to call us out of a fallen world and to give us a hope that even though we go through suffering and and trials in this world that there is a kingdom to come where you will truly reign father and that there will be no more evil in this world and we look forward to that time father and we just ask that you would help us father to to grow more like you and to serve one another and to love one another and specifically in this time we ask that you would give your spirit to speak through Gary, to be able to answer these questions that are presented tonight with truth. And we thank you. May you be glorified in this time. We praise you in the name of the Messiah. Amen. Amen. All right. So our first question comes from Jude. And what do you know? This is a, uh, <laughs> this is a tough question just to, to get started. Can you please chronologically outline or give an overview of the wars with the giants? And is Goliath the last giant?
1: That's uh, a huge set of questions there. And so I'm going to start with the last part because that's a lot shorter answer than the first part. And I could uh, do a whole show on just the chronology of the wars, but I won't. But I'll try and keep that to as short as I can, but give everybody sort of an understanding because I think it's an extraordinarily good question because it hits at the whole notion of what was really going on in the Exodus. And it will help Christians kind of take away, once you understand what's going on with these wars, away from the enemies who say that our God is an evil God who uh, did many evil things like slaughtering all of the innocent people in, in the covenant land. And it's couldn't be further from the truth in understanding how large this war was. I mean, it was the most horrific-sized war of the ancient time, but I'll come back to that in a second. So Goliath, is he the last giant? No, he was not the last giant. And in fact, uh, we have you know, giants uh, that are killed in David's time after Goliath. And those were Saph and Lami, and Sepai and Ishii Benab of names that we're giving. And I think one of the, uh, uh, there's another one in there, and and it might be one of these ones. I kind of go back and forth sometimes on it, but there's also a six-fingered and six-toed giant that was killed in those battles after David grew to uh, adulthood. And also, to give you an idea that there was more than just these Because those would have been, you know, those were, yes, were with the uh, Philistines in the Philistine Wars, but those ones other than possibly Goliath, who I think might have been king of Gath, wasn't the only one that was a king. And those kings aren't mentioned in these five. So. Philistine was ruled over by a pentapolis set of cities, five city-states, which is a standard military tactic used in the time of the conquest and before and what uh, Joshua ran up against and obviously what David and Saul were running up against and all through the judges. So five city-states, lots of unwalled villages. These are the mighty walled fortresses that are throughout the covenant land that people need to understand. But David took five smooth stones, not because he didn't have faith in God, not because he was a bad shot, not that he was thought, thinking he was going to miss because of fear or anything. He took five smooth stones because the five kings of the Philistines, the Saranam, the lords, the princes, and this is these are words that go back that I won't take a lot of time on right now, but it's there, It's an interesting story in itself as to what the meaning of the princes and the lords, which are the seranum, which goes back to, I'll do, I'll do it just quickly, back to the Gyges and the etymology, and Gyges being a king in Greece where the word giant comes from. So there's a whole bunch of history within that. David was prepared to kill all five that day. And there were wars after that, that David took care of uh, that are kind of part of the giant wars that uh, I'll touch a little bit on here uh, when David takes power. So not just the Philistines, but when he's uh, dealing with uh, Syria and the Horim, uh he's dealing with Raphaim as well. And then you have, even in the times of, you know, the Romans, you have accounts of giants and giants all through history. And so these aren't eight-foot people. These are 10, 11-foot giants that are being talked about in in the Roman times. So uh, I think we need to be aware that David likely got rid of most of the obvious-looking giants in his time, which was part of his commission, not only you know to take care of the Amalekite issue, but the Philistine issue and all of the giants that were still bound in a blood covenant to destroy Israel from the face of the earth. And so David was the warrior king uh, who, who did this and prepared the time for Solomon to create the temple. And if we look at the metallic dynasties that Daniel 2 talks about with the head of gold down to Rome, which are, which is the, uh, the two legs of, of, of iron, you have descendants, bloodlines of the Raphaim. So they may not be giants, but I'm sure they were probably taller than normal because to be a king just like King Saul was originally picked as being a head and a neck sort of taller than all the other Israelites – and they picked them to be like the kings of all of the other nations. That's because they were led by large men. Luga, as it's called in, in Sumeria, which is the same word for king. And they were led by giants. So the metallic dynasties that Daniel talks about, which you know, we roll that forward another, say, four or five hundred years. And you've got King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the terrible one. Just as there's branches of terrible ones, as Isaiah 25 talks about, in the city of the terrible ones, and the terrible ones Ezekiel 31 and 32 are talking about, many of which who have been slain who are in cells along the side of the abyss. But I'm going down too many rabbit trails here. So, yes, there's many, many... Um, giants around the world after the time of King King David and their descendants. That could be more of a hybridization as Akhenaten uh, would be one of those. And if you look at his facial features, you get that serpentine. Look, Google Akhenaten or go see him, his statue at a King Tut museum and you're going to see that serpentine face that we're talking about that was characteristic of the uh, of the Nephilim. So the Nephilim Wars, the first Major One that we get told of in the Bible that we can ascertain to uh, uh, the war of giants is Genesis 14, and this is well before the Exodus. This is in the time of Abraham, and Abraham moves into the land of giants. I know uh, Og's kingdom is called the land of giants in Bashan, but there were giants everywhere, particularly throughout Canaan, and then hybrid giants. And what I mean by that is uh, Rephaim produced uh, nations through a human female, which would create a lower uh, uh, grade of sort of uh, hybrid Rephaim-human, and they wouldn't be as tall as the Rephaim. These would be the Amorites. These would be the Jebusites. And all of those names that you get out of uh, Genesis 10 with the offspring of Canaan, Seth, and Hy- and Sidon, whom also have probably some of their descendants marry into uh, Raphaim, or they take Raphaim females because all of these nations are considered hybrid, Nations. These are the people that are talked about in the report in Numbers 13, um, where the scouts go in and they come back with a report. They report Anakim, which are Sheshai, Telmai, and Ahimon, but they also report that there are people that are taller than them. And Sheshai and the other two kings are the Anakim, and Deuteronomy 2 says the Anakim are are Raphaim. So these were the giants. But the other peoples, the Amalekim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and other peoples that are listed in Numbers 13, are the ones that are just taller than Israel. And then 40 years later or so, when Moses is about to lead Israel out of the desert to, to start the conquest of the, of the covenant land, He reminds of what what happened to them and the spies and how the evil spies called them Nephilim when they're actually Raphaim, which is an exaggeration. But it also shows a recognition that the Israelites understood the Nephilim were giants in Genesis 6 and the veracity of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in its implication. But uh, Moses talked about the Anakim and the three kings and those taller than Israelites that were different than the Anakim and lived in these mighty fortresses so understand that this was a land of hybrid giants okay so you've got a combination of raphaim and raphaim hybrids that are dominating and populating, waiting in ambush for Israel so that they can destroy Israel from the face of the earth and stop the Messiah from coming by implication. And I'll touch a little bit more on that in a second. So that's the first war. And you have four kings of the east, and they are all giant kings. And, uh, you know, one of them is uh, Tidal, king of nations. And that goes back to the root word chadal, meaning to fear. So uh, king of nations, chadal, means great son. That goes back to the root word to chadal, which is 1763. And that one means to fear or to be terrible, just as King Habata of Mount Hermon in the Epic of Gilgamesh is uh, known as the Terrible One, and he is commissioned by the gods to terrorize humankind, to persecute them, to slaughter them. He's the Terrible One, and part of the branches of the Terrible Ones from a polytheist account. And so all of these are uh, giants in the East, whether or not it's Aramphael, who is from Shinar, and that means he's the sayer of darkness. You have Ariok, which is lion-like. And so I'm just, anyways, I don't want to get into too many details. We have a lot of questions tonight. But understand that they were fighting against the Canaanites from Sodom, who were led by Rephaim kings and also had the hybrids with them. And then you had the Amalekim, which predate Amalek being born in Genesis 36. So these are the Amalekite. Amalekim giants, as opposed to the Amalekites that come from the offspring of Tima and Eliphaz, Eliphaz being son of Esau, Timna being Ahorim, and Amalek being... The, the hybrid offspring to produce the Malachim that Israel's going to war with over 400 years thereafter. And so this was a war of giants that also included the Zuzim of Ham, it included the Horim uh, and several other nations. So this was the first war of giants in the time of Abraham. And Abraham went up against the uh, eastern alliance to free Lot with just a small number of commandos with him so he went into the lion's dead of giants (laughs) and rescued lot and so you just can't imagine how how much courage and faith that would have taken to to have done that by abraham and then obviously how skillful of a warrior he probably was as well so that was the uh that was the uh I guess the first war. So if we move into the time of, and there's going to be wars of giants, but not with Israel or related to Abraham. I mean, because as I said, they're all led by giant kings. But in the time of the Exodus, you have the first war as they, as Israel, a ragtag nation of slaves is going to uh, run into the Amalekim. And these are, the ones that are the offspring of uh, Timnah and Eliphaz. And I would also presume that they have some original Amalekim also living with them. And they have this name, King Agag, which is a title like a Caesar or a pharaoh, that goes along with the kings. So you have a king Agag at this period of time, you have a king Agag at the time of King Saul in the Amalekite War, and then you have the Agagites in Esther who are somehow survivors of that Ag- Agag bloodline or that royal bloodline of, of the Raphaim. And so you have this hybrid nation living amongst, I think, giants as well. And they are going to try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth while they're still a ragtag nation. And the reason why they're going to do that is because Esau, the grandfather of Amalek, who creates the nation as the patriarch, is the brother of Jacob who loses the blessing, he loses the inheritance rights, and he loses the right to the Magianic bloodline. But if they wipe Israel from the face of the earth then in their thinking and by old law, they would inherit the complete blessings. And so they had a dog in the race, so to speak, in terms of of doing this. And so that's the first war. Uh, Obviously, Israel wins with the help of God and Moses with his hands in the air. But 40 years later, after Moses is preparing them in Deuteronomy 1, They are going to return to the place where the Israelites rebelled against God out of fear from the giants and the mighty forces and the hybrid giants that were in the land. And they're going to go back to the Negev, to southern portion of the the covenant land. And they're going to have a war with King Arad, who I would say is also Raphaim of Negev. And it's a Canaanite city. And they are going to defeat uh, Arad at that battle of Atheronim. The battle with Amalekim was at Rephidim, if people are looking for some of the names and places of this battle. And so that's the first battle after the 40 years in in the wilderness. And then after that, they're going to have to go around Edom and around Moab and around Uh, Ammon to get to fight uh, probably one of the greater battles of history where Moses is still in charge and Joshua is is with them. But they are going to fight the eastern campaign before crossing the Jordan. This eastern campaign is going to be made up of King Og of Ashtaroth who has 60 fortress cities and numerous unwalled villages within that empire. So you basically have something like 12 pentapolises set up, and the math works perfectly, of course, for that. Um, And probably the most powerful king that's living in Bashan, which is Mount Hermon and home of the creation of the giants in Genesis 6, according to the Book of Enoch, and a very important site in the, in the post-Olivian world as well, and perhaps one of the locations to the second incursion, as I position myself for how giants show up after the flood, and or Sodom, and probably both. And so this is the start of the Eastern Campaign. So they're going to war with Sihan first, and alongside that is going to be the, uh, the Midian pentapolis that they're going to take care of in the third battle of this of this war so he the israelites fight king Sihon, who jewish legend says is the brother of of uh og we don't get that biblically but it kind of makes sense uh and he is sort of equivalent to og and og is the last of the raphaim not of the giants moving forward because there are All of these Raphaim that are still in the covenant land, but also uh, you have Goliath, who's a giant that goes back to Rapha, which is uh, singular for Raphaim, and all of the, the giants that I was talking about previously in the first part of the question. He's the last of the second incursion. And he lives in the land of giants, which is, you know, absolutely astonishing. And so Sihon, or I mean, that's Og who lives in the, in the land of, uh, of giants, um, as, as the Bible says. But it's all the land of giants. So they defeat Sihan and then they defeat Og, because Og didn't come out in battle first because he thought Sihon, with his massive army and fortresses, would defeat Israel. But Israel wins, and they sack all of the cities and take all of the cities. And then Og comes out and he loses in the same way. And all of those cities, all of those 60 fortresses fall and the unwalled villages. And then after that, they're going to take on the allied hybrid nation of the Midianites and their five king Pentapolis and defeat them and kill the five kings. And then Moses dies, and then they're going to cross the river, and their first encampment is at Gigal as they cross the river. And, of course, Jericho is going to be uh, the first uh, campaign. So as you move forward in terms of this, then you start the what I would call the uh, the middle and the southern campaign. So they start in the middle of the land of the covenant, and they're going to take on the kings of Let's say Jerusalem and I and all of those different pentapolis cities, and they're going to swing all the way down into Hebron, Kiriath, Arba, uh, and Arba is the father of the of the Anak, as we're told in Joshua and a couple other uh, one other verse in 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 the. Uh, In the Bible that he's the patriarch, one of the few patriarchs of the Rephaim that we're given names on. And they take on all of those massive alliance and pentapolis of kings and city-states in the south. And then from there, they're going to move up what I call the Northern Campaign. And I think... Most people would call it the Northern Campaign. And this is Jabin of Hazer, just as the Hazerim has word etymology that goes back to fortresses, and it's also associated with the Avim of Gaza that the Philistines expropriated the land from. And Hazor means uh, castle, high-walled city. And so Jabin's pentapolis, just to give another um example of a pentapolis and I won't uh, dwell on this forever but there are all of the different major kings had a pentapolis city they had uh, Hazer Gada, and I'm going to read this Harshuel Mphazer Hador and Belhazor. and so this was a powerful king and he was the king of of the north and this line of Jabin patronymical name kings were known as the head and the leaders and the kings of the north since before time in Joshua eleven ten from the flood anyways and perhaps there was giants living there before the flood and he lines up all of the kings of the north and even kings across uh, the uh, Jordan on the east side and they're going to have a battle that Joshua is going to fight it. And it's going to be the greatest battle ever won by any one nation against such overwhelming odds. So many different kings, so many armies, so many giants. And that's the northern campaign. And again, there's so many, so many details in there. But moving on, they're not done yet. And then they're going to move back into the mountains because so many of the the giants escaped into the mountains to hide. And what's important to understand about that is that that's why it's called the Mountain Campaign. And this comes towards the end of Joshua's life. So these battles take a very, very long period of time. Uh, So much so that it's almost like endless war. And they died before defeating the Philistines. And so the Philistines and some of the Horim that is further south of the covenant land and nations on the other side of the of the Jordan and elsewhere are going to harass Israel through the time of the judges. But it's the Pentapolis of the Philistines that is really going to harass them although the Midianites will and the Amalekim will as well but you have the uh, the giants that come from Crete, the Kaftarine, the Chesterine the Calusites and the left of the Avim and it's the Pilesty of the descendant of Ham that migrate to Crete that intermarry with these giants on Crete and then move to southern Land area of the land of the covenant, somewhere around fourteen hundred, and they expropriate the land as I mentioned and set up camp there. They were one of the most powerful military states ever, complete with what I would call the mice strategy and tactics of cities. Uh, And again, I've got I've got documents on the whole fourteen year war and the Philistine military setup. But understand this: these are. These are the people that are harassing Israel all throughout the age of the Judges. So God has to raise like Shamgar and Jephthah and Samson and Samuel and all to push back the Philistines throughout the age of the Judges. And then King Saul is going to fight a battle at Michmash and go up against the the three companies of boilers, which are the special regiment of giants that are just killers beyond understanding. Um, And then the Philistines are going to survive um, after the time of King Saul, even though Saul does a pretty good job of killing most of the Amalekites during those wars. He doesn't, doesn't kill King Agog, and Samuel has to do that. And this is why King Saul is going to lose his kingdom. And David's going to take over. And David's going to do a mopping up uh, with, uh, with the Amalekites, but he's also going to defeat uh, the, uh, the Philistines. And he's going to fight several battles, like at the Valley of Rephaim and at Baal Perazim, and at Gath defeating the Philistines so several battles to defeat them. And then he's going to go on from there David is and 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 again these nations at the time of David and Saul they are still loaded with raphaim and hybrid raphaim. David's going to fight a series of battles with the Horim in Syria and people don't usually associate the Horim in Syria at this point in time but if you go back to of Genesis 36 and First Chronicles, where it details the lords of Edom, you've got um, a, a king Hadad that's reigning in Havith, which is a Syrian city. And it's thought that the leadership of the Horian Empire in, uh, down in the south and the one in the north in Syria alternated kings and cities in terms of who was leading it from generation to generation. So David goes out and fights. With uh, uh, Hadad of Syria, and then he has to go to the desert down south to fight the the Edomites, and that's at the at the Battle of the Salt Sea. And most people don't make that connection that they were just coming in support of their northern brethren, and so. King David had to defeat them as well. Uh, and so those were the wars that were fought that are kind of listed in a quick summary. So there's a lot of wars and a lot of details in there. And like I say, it's a, it's a whole show the, to, to spend the time on in terms of uh, talking about it.
0: <laughs> it's definitely a third of a show at least. <laughs> that was a, a ton of information. I hope that everybody has their notepads out and they were taking notes because that was – Basically, a book in itself, what you just presented to us. We appreciate it.
1: It, it would research. be a book to write. It, it could be a book, no doubt about it. And I was mm. moved, moving quickly, so I know I probably lost a few people. But anyways, those are the major campaigns.
0: Well, we appreciate it. And the awesome thing with uh, the YouTube, you know, with these video archives, is you can go back and you can listen to things at 0. .75 play speed. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need to, to take notes on, on all that. That was Awesome. Thank you so much for all of your research. We'll move on to the next question that also comes from Jude. Do angels have free will? Is there any strength or ability that humans have over angels now in the time before we will judge them? And what abilities will we have in the time when we can judge them?
1: Yeah, some, some really good questions. I'm not sure I can answer all of it. Uh, but I can certainly answer some of it, I think. So the first question is, do angels have free will? They certainly have free choice. Um, And I know a lot of people like to argue forever the difference between free will and free choice. I like the term free choice. And what I mean about that is they were born immortal. They may not have had a choice in that, but what they did have a choice in is to follow God's ways or not. And many chose not to. And that was their choice. So they have free choice. And they were granted power by God, whatever those powers were, and whatever those governing areas were, certainly included the earth. uh, They were given those powers. And not all of those powers have been reigned back in. So let's separate what happened then before the flood to what happens After the flood. So as we understand the watchers, and watchers show up three times in Daniel 4 as uh, people coming down from the throne of God, seraphim angels, likely out of Isaiah 6 and/or the sons of God of of Isaiah 6 and/or the sons of God of Genesis 6, these are likely the Seraphim. And seraphim are amongst the three watchers amongst the throne that Enoch talks about. The uh, cherubim, the ophanim, which are the ones within the wheels. Uh, wheel is the word ophan, and that's where ophanim comes from. I am is male, plural, and meaning ones, so the ones in the wheels. The uh, Seraphim are the seraphim fiery serpent angels, so those are, you know, the, the serpent ones or the fiery serpent ones so that everybody sort of understands what I'm talking about. So they had governance over the earth um, and they rebelled and wherever you want a place to rebel, rebellion happening, either between Genesis 1, 1 or 2 or sometime during creation, the days of creation um, they have uh, control over the earth Before the flood, even though they had rebelled and God had permitted things to go on in that way so that uh, the whole angelic rebellion could be resolved and all of the names in the book of life written before creation would be fulfilled. So they had power in the antediluvian world, and that's why you have all of these different cult centers around the world. That's why you had the Nephilim that, that were created. That's why they were able to usurp the kingships and enslave humankind and were the were the cause for the flood. But in doing so, with that power, they violated many more crimes or had they had they committed more crimes and more violations like the creating of nephilim changing of dna destroying the earth maybe things that they did in the past but they certainly continued but the sexual violation but many of the angels in the abyss as we find out even in the New Testament, Jude 1:6, uh, 2 Peter, and also 1 Peter when Jesus goes down and talks to these beings that are in the abyss who uh, broke the law at the time of, of Noah. So you had them killing and doing um, maybe they I, well, I think the polytheist accounts shows that gods were killing people. So whether or not they have that, Right or power, seemingly, they either killed directly humans or had their offspring do it for them, and the people who carried water and worshiped them c- kill humankind and have absolute power over humankind. And I think they probably did have that power that they would exert directly over humans as well as part of the powers that they were created. I think that changes a little bit, though, after the Flood. Not only do the giants seem to be smaller, um, not quite the same type of demigod that's created uh, before the Flood. But I think the ruling gods are degraded as well. And that's probably why you have satyrs show up after the flood as part of that degradation, knowing that Azazel would be a seraphim, from what I said previous, and that he's now being depicted as a goat god or a satyr. So I'm thinking there's a degradation of the power, even though there's the council of the gods that rule over the 70 nations, council of the gods, Psalms 82, Uh, 70 nations in Deuteronomy 32, and the extended nations as they spread out after Babel after that. But there would go down to that 70 and up to the Council of Gods. And then you've got Satan as the prince of this god overseeing all of that, and the world is still in, in control of them. But they don't seem to have as much power over humans, and they seem to rely more on the Rephaim and the demigods created after the flood. So I think that's been pulled back and, and the ability of the giants was, was pulled back. But that doesn't mean that all of the angels went to the abyss. Only the ones that were the worst of the angels and only the ones that were impassioned. So they have been exerting power over and I think they have extraordinary power. And the only way we have authority over them Uh, and including demons, who are not as powerful, although there are some that, to to cast them out, we're told that you have to fast and pray for long periods of time. There's certainly a level of demon spirit that is more powerful than the average one that possesses humans. But you have um, these powers that um, will also come about with the angels, I think, uh, in the end time, just as you have... Uh, antichrist receiving power from satan and probably azazel uh, that he will actually show in the end time so you have this power however much it's been restricted that is still there Uh, so we don't know i don't know what that extension is what i do know though is that none of their power has power over your spirit And if you are praying uh, with Jesus and with God, you can push these back. And it may take some considerable effort or time, but you can push back that power. But your faith also has to be very, very strong as well. And I know many of the people who contact me, and as myself, I've had spiritual attacks. So I know you can push them back, but I don't want to diminish the idea that there aren't these very, very powerful entities, because there's a hierarchy of demons, and there's a hierarchy of angels, and they have different powers. So we need to be aware, we need to be aware of that, but nobody is more powerful than the power of God and and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, as we roll forward through the resurrection, uh, we're going to be raised up like angels, and we're going to judge angels. But we're also said we're going to be like angels. So we our position will probably be a little higher and our role's a little different simply because we've had to overcome through free choice with very little knowledge and the angels had extraordinary, intimate knowledge of God, but still rebelled. We have a small piece of knowledge and our immortality has to come by faith. And so our choice, I think, is rewarded My speculation, my understanding, uh, to a higher degree, that may raise us up a little higher. Certainly, we're going to judge the angels who persecuted humankind throughout uh, our our period. So, I would say that's about as far as I can go into the future in terms of what our power might be, because we're really not given that, that I'm aware of scripturally. And if we are, please send me that information, because I would like to know it, but I've not found that.
0: Awesome, thank you very much for that answer. This is our last question from Jude. If there is a hierarchy of the most blessed/saved people, would it go chronologically or by doctrine? I know chronologically it would be Jewish first, then Christian, then Muslim, then Mormon, etc. But if it's by doctrine, who's first? Lutherans, Mormons, Sunni Muslims? That's a very interesting uh, question that takes some. Uh, I guess they're making yeah. some assumptions there,
1: but. A few assumptions. So I would refer to Matthew chapter 20, um, verse 16. Uh, And Jesus clearly says, uh, and the first will be last. Um, So I think we need to take a step back in terms of um, how somebody, how a lot of people might perceive uh, the resurrection um, into eternity goes. Um, I don't think that there's going to be a, a big difference for a lot of people, but there is certainly a certain difference. And I understand this question, hopefully if I understood it correctly, that we're really talking about the resurrection and who's going to be raised and in, in what order or by what, what doctrine. And so I would then um, you know, refer to um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 23, uh, and 24, I think, uh, and we get a chronology of the resurrection. Now that is Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those still alive and those who died in Jesus. And so now let me explain this a little bit more, and then I'll finish it. And so, obviously, Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection and made all the other resurrections possible. We understand there there were some that came out of their graves at the resurrection of Jesus, and they may already be in heaven. But those aren't all of the first fruits. But by the time we get to Revelations, and I look at Revelations in in a chronological order, uh, that you have the 24 elders. And I think those 24 elders are probably made up of New Testament and Old Testament. So they would be part of those first fruits. And they're already in place before the seals are open, just before the start of the last seven years. But then we also have Revelation 6, which is the, uh, <clears throat> the martyred saints, martyred for Jesus. So that is saying martyred saints from the time of Jesus' death to whenever the start of the last seven years comes about in that period. And they are depicted in heaven and told to wait for those who are yet to be martyred like them, that will come out of the tribulation. And so these are the martyred saints before the last seven years. And the Revelation 7, these are those who come out of the great tribulation of saints, not the great tribulation of the world, That happens after the abomination that Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke talk about, but the tribulation of the saints. These are the ones who are killed in the first three and a half years. These are are part of that first fruits of the resurrection. Then you have, I think, the two witnesses that are going to be part of those first fruits and the 144,000. We're not told the 144,000 are slain, but they're shown in heaven in Revelation 14, and they're called first fruits. So I think that's the first set of the first fruits. Then you have the second exodus. And that's Ezekiel 37 and a whole bunch of other verses. But in in Ezekiel 37, you have not only the second exodus that starts at the, uh, say, verse 14 or 15 or 16, but before that, you have the dry bones. That's a resurrection of all of Israel because this happens after the abomination after those in Judah recognize the one they pierced and will mourn for him like their own only son. This is after they see the sign in the sky and the abomination. And they're going to be joined by Israel, who has awakened because of the 144,000 in the first three years and are waiting for Exodus. And when the Exodus happens, that's led by Jesus. But you also have this resurrection so that all of them, who have now accepted Jesus who were living, and then all the ones past are resurrected, and they will go under the judgment of Jesus of that time. And those, uh, on to, as, as Daniel 12 talks about, when his people at the time of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah 37 talks about, this is the last three and a half years, those from the dust are, are risen as well. They're talking about Israelites not The church resurrection. We have to keep church prophecies separate from Judah and separate from Israel and apply them specifically to each to get the full understanding. And so you have that resurrection. And then you have the resurrection of those who did not take the mark of the beast yet. excuse me, those who did not take the mark of the beast, but were killed and beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast. And those who didn't worship in the last three uh, half years, worship, Antichrist, or uh, Satan. And they're resurrected to rule with Jesus in Revelation 20 for the millennium. So that's the next resurrection. And then you have the resurrection at the end of the millennium, where you have the second death for those who are going to uh, be judged to go to the second death. And or according to, to Romans um, chapter two, as I recall, um, according to what's in their heart. And I leave that judgment up to God and Jesus of whether or not anybody is saved or not, but they're going to be judged at that time, I think, either into uh, eternal uh, internal second death or uh, into, into eternity. So when I look at how the chronology is going to take place, those are the buckets that I think Scripture tells us is the order. So hopefully I answered the question correctly.
0: Definitely. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the verses that came to my mind was, In Galatians 3, you know, it says, For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Whereas many of you have have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, So I I think that you definitely got into a greater depth, but that was my very basic mind thinking there. Uh, You know, to be baptized into Christ is to accept His crucifixion, and you know, for those who don't accept that crucifixion, that's something that uh, we really have to share with them—that that, that truth. Um, but
1: I think and we, and, oh, and that will be shared. That will that will be shared by the 144,000 mm-hmm. around the world, uh, which is why Israel and Judah will. Uh, I will accept Jesus as their Messiah after the abomination and it's done by the two witnesses and then there's mm-hmm. one last angel that's going to preach the gospel to the world so everybody in the world who are living in the end time will get that opportunity to make that choice
0: hallelujah well we have five minutes until nine I guess we can go ahead and uh, take a quick break you get some water take a breather Gary you've been pouring out information <laughs> like a water pot so i just take a quick break and buckle up and we'll be right back. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation, where wisdom has increased, as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth, and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com.
2: we can come together. The Digital Readers Club is our online ecclesia meant for those who've forsaken churchianity but still want the closeness of a family to study with. Join us every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time to put together the puzzle pieces of truth scattered throughout the ancient scriptures.
0: Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content.
2: You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya.
0: Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers.
2: We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, The Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation.
0: To become even more involved, please visit patreon.com sacredwordpublishing word publishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world all right welcome back everyone i'm glad to get back into the questions we got through a whopping three with the first hour but i know we spent some time catching up and and it's definitely important that uh gary you just let the spirit lead you and share as much information as you can we will always prayerfully have next month to catch up on anything that we don't uh, get to cover tonight, but Gary did say that he's expecting to get through the rest of the questions, so let's go ahead and get started. This one comes from Saddam in Daniel 8, 10 through 11. It says, and it waxed great even to the hosts of the heaven and cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts. What time period in the tribulation is this taking place? And could it be part of a counterfeit Armageddon? And do you think the Antichrist will parade and change the defeated heavenly angels live on CNN in front of the world to see, <laughs> deceiving the world into believing the angelic good guys are the bad guys slash the enemy?
1: Yeah, excellent question by Sarang, And if my memory serves me right, he always asks very Good questions about the chronology of the end time and events in the end time, and I, I'm sure he's uh, uh, probably uh, a very, very well uh, and educated and knowledgeable Bible uh, prophecy student. So, uh, I admire some of his questions in terms of what he's zeroing in on, and so. When we, when we have the, uh, the host of heaven that is going to be um, cast down to the ground and trampled on, um, this works very, very well with our understanding of Jesus' chronology. Uh, With the abomination in the midpoint of the last seven years, it works very, very well in the timing of this prophecy, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, that the abomination takes place at the last three, at the midpoint of the last three and a half years, and perfectly with the powers that are shaken after the abomination uh, in uh, Matthew and and, uh, Mark, and that is uh, powers, we'll go back to Dunamis and Excusia, and these are angelic powers of heaven, part of that hierarchy that I'm talking about that's being talked about by by Jesus and Mark and Matthew. This is Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 is the war in heaven. Revelation 12 happens with uh, 1260 days left, three and a half years. Antichrist comes to power in Revelation 13 with three and a half years to reign at the middle point. He is crowned in the abomination uh, at the midpoint where he takes power. In the first three and a half year he's rising and Babylon is in absolute control. And so after uh, Antichrist destroys Babylon in Revelation 17, just after the midpoint, after being crowned, after the Ten King Empire hands over their power to the beast, then they destroy Babylon and he's going to set up his own Religion, as Daniel talks about, that the fathers, uh, that his forefathers didn't know. So he's going to have uh, a religion that worships Antichrist as a false messiah, and he's going to have Satan worshipped as God in this new religions that uh, his, his ancestors did not know. So I think we're looking at a religion that goes back before the flood. I think that's what that sort of obscure kind of reference is, is talking about. And so um, that is the timing. Uh, it's when there's war in heaven, and Antichrist is working with Satan at that time in Revelation 12. And then that's also the time that the people of Judea are fleeing because of the abomination. And they're going to be protected by God for 1,260 days, the three and a half years. And Satan is going to attack them at the beginning. But after that, he and Antichrist are going to turn against all of those who uphold the the word of Jesus and follow Jesus and follow God and is going to start the, I would say, the second half uh, tribulation the tribulation of the world that hasn't been seen since the beginning of the world not the tribulation of the saints this is when the wrath bowls are going to be taking place so when antichrist pulls down some of the angelic host the starry host from heaven and will trample on them that's the timing is that war after he's taken power, after Satan has given him his power, probably boosted by Azazel or Abaddon as well. And I think this is uh, a timing that happens just after the Revelation 9 war, which is the Joel 1 and 2, in which is the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war because of second exodus prophecies and um a couple other things that i won't go down on the rabbit trail on today just so that i can get to to my answer on this this is the time that antichrist i think is going to take credit as winning the armageddon war so when that great army of joel one and two Ezekiel 38 and 39, that great alliance of armies, uh, slaughtered on the mountains of Israel in, as the fatlings of Bashan and all the other allegories that are going in it, and it's the mighty ones and the mighty kings of the earth. And the Revelation 9 war of 200 million men, that is going to be looked upon as Armageddon. But it won't be. It'll be the counterfeit Armageddon. Then Antichrist takes credit for that, and moves his armies into Jerusalem, as Luke 21, 19 uh, and 20, Luke chapter 21, verses 19 and 20 talks about when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then Luke goes into the abomination, right? Antichrist shows up after this army is defeated, and then he's going to be trampling on the city for three and a half years. Maybe a little bit longer. Uh, Well, no, you won't be trampling on it for longer than that, but uh, there's going to be a, a resonance of that trampling that takes a little bit longer before it's looked after. Is probably a better way of talking about it. So, yes, not only will they parade the captured angelic beings to show the power that they have, but they're also going to show the world that... They have the power to defeat the God of the universe. That's what they're going to try and do with this. And also remember that they also killed the two witnesses, although God calls them up after three days. That didn't quite, won't quite have ended quite the way that they wanted it to happen. But with these ones, they are going to have them as showpieces. And it's to convince people to take the mark, and it's convincing people to worship Satan and and, uh, Antichrist, and it's to convince people to fight with them against God and his loyal angels and against Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So, yes, I think all of that is going on, and that is a midpoint uh, after the abomination uh, event, shortly, very shortly thereafter, but I would think just after the destruction of Babylon.
0: Excellent, thank you very much for that. next question also comes from Daniel 8 and from Saddam, and Daniel 8.14 it says, And he said unto me into 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And he said unto me, yeah, okay, same thing. Uh, What are these
1: 2,300
0: days, and are they based on the Babylonian calendar, and how do they fit into the end times?
1: Yeah. So these are days as opposed to years uh, because we need to separate how the terms are used. So when you get the 70 weeks of years, those are obviously every day of the week is a year. And so we don't want to overlay that part of prophecy onto specific days. And so in Daniel 9:27, that's the last week of years, that's the last seven years. And it's split into the middle of two 12,60 day uh, periods two, three and a half years of 30 days, which is standard for biblical prophecy years as opposed to uh, the Babylonian calendar or any other calendar. So this is, I think, prophetic years based on prophecy and Hebrew tradition. Uh, And again, not, uh, you know, accounting for the jubilees of the years as the prophecies don't tend to look at it from that perspective. But I, you know, I could be wrong on, on that part of the detail but what i do know is in the last seven years you have it split into the middle and jesus designates that middle at the abomination based on daniel's testimony and uh we get uh uh, three and a half years as the midpoint which makes sense you divide that by two as daniel talks about but then you start to get into these days that it can be a little bit obscure. And again, it's hard to know some of the days. So just let me tell you what I'm talking about. So Antichrist is going to uh, rule for three and a half years. And that seems to match up with the period in Revelation 12 of 1,260 days, which is 1230 months, uh, which is uh, three and a half years of. 30 month calendar dates. So you have 360 days in, 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 in a year. And then in Daniel 12 11, you have at the point of the abomination, there's going to be 1,290 days from the time of the abomination, and blessed are those who are alive for 1,335 days. And so that's about three and a half years, but there's some extra days that are involved. And then you get into what is being talked about in Daniel eight fourteen, where it talks about 300 days uh, before the sanctuary is cleansed. So what we do know is, is that the temple mount area, the extremity, the uh, extension of the temple and the rest of the temple is going to be trampled on for, you know, at least 1290 days, three and a half years. But the additional period, whether or not you're using, you know, 1040 days or 1010 days, that's less the 1260 or the 1290 off the uh, 2300 days. Um, is a period uh, that is longer than that last three and a half years. So there's going to be a period after the uh, last three and a half years before the temple area is healed. And that might be because of the destruction that's going on, because you get another reference in Ezekiel 39 which I said is about at the, ne- at the midpoint of the last seven years, they are going to collect weapons of war and things that's going to help keep the Israelites and the Judeans alive who have been exodised uh, later to the desert. Um, but the Judeans are going to collect these weapons of war after the Gog War, and it's going to keep them alive uh, for about seven years, as I recall. And of course, Ezekiel 39 also has the second exodus as part of what happens after the Gog War. So you see how that's sort of connected. And then that matches up quite well with what Daniel is talking about for this additional three years, right? So I think that's how that comes together. And that's when Israel would come back to Jerusalem uh, after being in the desert after being beyond, being kept there and protected by God till about three years after Armageddon, and that matches up that the temple will have been uh, cleansed by then, or the sanctuary will be cleansed by then, and then everything comes together to go forward into the millennium. I think that's how that all comes together.
0: Well, that's a very great perspective. Thank you for sharing. I'll move on to the next question that comes from Matt. Have you ever heard the theory that Francis Bacon, a 33rd degree mason, edited the final version of the King James Bible in 1611? Yes. Go ahead. Also that he may have altered it and left out some books purposely. If so, do you believe it may be true?
1: Yeah, I'm not convinced that they left out books because there was an apocrypha that was part of the original edition and publishing of the King James Version, and you can get that still today. It's the King James Version with the Apocrypha. Uh, But because it was Apocrypha, it was, let's say, a couple hundred years ago left out. But I would encourage people to read those because there's some terrific books in there, like the Book of Wisdom, First and Second, Esdra, Baruch. It provides some extraordinary information and is very, very consistent with Scripture. but it is apocryphal, so you have to read it in that sort of vain uh, thought. but it does match up quite well with with Scripture. Uh, so I don't know whether any books were left out. Um, I don't haven't found any research. Uh, books that were collected by the, the church fathers that had put into the original canon. You could argue back then there might have been books that were left out, but I'm not convinced they were left out at this point in time. But I'm open to that, uh, and it sort of goes as to why I would be open to that. It goes to the first part of the question. So there was a fellow who is a master uh, adept uh, very very high levels uh, he's known as being part of Freemasonry but he is an adept of a higher level and this particular fellow uh, is American and of course he is only he's only one of these very high level people that are talking about uh, the publication of the King James Bible so this is Manly P Hall And uh, he said that the first edition of the Bible was edited by Bacon. So no matter what anybody says, there are adepts out there that are saying that. And it was prepared under Masonic supervision. And and he says it bears more marks than the Cathedral of Strasbourg, more Masonic uh, corruption in there than the Cathedral of Strasbourg. Um, So you may or may not want to uh, agree with that, but there was a period of time where King James handed the Bible over to Francis Bacon, who was a Rosicrucian, an adept of an extraordinary level, and is the spiritual founder for the Royal Society, which created science, which degrades God and leads people away from God and all the things that uh, the seven sacred sciences do. His portrait hangs in the main entrance of the royal society. And Bacon, not only was he a Rosicrucian and an adept of one of the highest levels of that period, uh, maybe the highest of that period, uh, except for some of the royal masons. Um, And know that King James is an initiated Freemason, but he's also a royal mason of even higher orders. That's a symbolic initiation. He's a bloodline. He of the most ennobled bloodlines of the Stuart family, which was even thought to be more ennobled than the Merovingian bloodline. This is who he comes from, and he was a Freemason as well, but he's higher. That's just paying tribute to the lower hierarchy being involved with Freemasonry. Francis Bacon, he creates two literary societies, one being the Helmet Knights of the Helmet Society, the other one being the Spearshaker Society that William Shakespeare was allegedly part of, Um, and likely was, and probably where he got his name from. I won't go into the history of that, but he created these writing organizations, which is a typical MO of Gnostics, whether or not it's the Inkling Society or other writing societies, but to create stories of their genealogies and their history. But in the process, he was trying to create a new, refined English language, which was going to be in his... Uh, visioned to be the new Babel language, the one-world language for the end time, with Gnosticism being that universal religion and in a time where they presented their, their dragon Messiah. And he wrote the new Atlantis, uh, which is how they envisioned it. Ten Nephilim kings, as they uh, were reigning over uh, Atlantis, which was thought to be the helm of world government, In process because they're trying to take over the whole world in the anti-diluvian world. So you have all of that going on, and they developed the language out of those writing societies, and then they had dreamed up a great project that would also help King James unite some of the religious. Factions and fighting that's going on, whether it's between the Catholics and the Presbyterians and the Pilgrims and all these different ones, they were at each other, and he was trying to create some sort of harmony. So he creates or commissions this, the King James Version Bible, to be written. And this is uh, seized upon by Bacon and his uh, elite. Nobility, which are all bloodlines, the only educated ones, and they're going to do the translations. And so that's what Annley P. Hall is referring to. So you can get words like Sion in Deuteronomy 4 47 or 48, 48, I think it's in. That's another name for Zion, and it's one of the core words for the priory of Sion, which is that. Organization they don't like to admit that was there that created the Knights Templar in a small priory on the Rock of Sion in Jerusalem, crowning the first king of Jerusalem, Baldwin II, the official first one with the king of Jerusalem title that they say comes through uh, grafted in bloodlines from the tribe of Benjamin because Jerusalem was awarded to the Benjamites in the time of Joshua. And then in the New Testament, you get Sion that is used seven times. And that word goes back to uh, the word for Mount Zion or Zion as being Jerusalem and the mountain in Zion, which is a different word than the Sion word that's used in Deuteronomy 47 to 48. And so Zion is different than Sion. And that's one of those things that I think that they did. And Sion is a French transliteration for Zion in Latin and Zion in Hebrew. And so they conflate and overlay and put their markers on into the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 48, Sion should have been uh, translated as it was out of Hebrew, and that is Sion, which is s I-Y-O-N, as I recall, there might be a W in there beside the N as well, as opposed to the Zion that starts with a T, that's Jerusalem. It's not translated that way out of Hebrew, just as Satan isn't translated as Halel in Isaiah 14. And it's translated as Lucifer, which is the god of the Freemasons, right? And it's an Italian word inserted for a Hebrew word that happens to be the god of the Masons. So I think there's markers in there. There are things like hell, which are conflated. They're conflating the term of Sheol with the lake of fire and Hades all into one and there's a separation between the lake of fire where the abyss is located. So you get this conflation of the word hell instead of translating exactly as it should have come out of Hebrew for the name so that people don't get the terms confused. You have the unicorn that's also used um, in association in the Psalms with, si- uh, with Zion, um, and that is the word Hebrew word rem. This is not a unihorned horse. It's a wild bull. It may have had one horn, but we're not told that. But it's a wild bull. A unihorned horse is something that Nephilim warriors rode in mythology into battle and reign from as their great white, typically horse. And it would have to be probably DNA manipulated so that it would be able to hold the size of the Nephilim. So it was a violation against creation, which is probably why the unicorn in their mythology isn't on the ark, because it was a corrupted form of animal, and God only called animals that weren't corrupted. You have Easter in Acts 12.4 that uh, should not be there. It's the Greek word for Passover, and other translations use Passover. And it's not that because the the Jewish people were celebrating Easter there— because this happens shortly after the crucifixion, where they use the term uh, Passover when Jesus was crucified. And in Acts twelve three, you actually have the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's being celebrated, which begins the Passover, Passover at the end. So there's no reason to have transliterated that or translated that as Easter. That is Ishtar. That is Astart. That is a corruption that I believe is purposely put, mm-hmm. put in there. And I can go on and on in terms of how Yahweh is, was mistranslated as Lord 6,800 times, Elohim like 2,600 times. What I'm not saying, though, is, is that the King James Bible is a bad translation. We just need to understand that they've put their markers in there for the end time. And they've only corrupted the English translations. And I'm not saying other translations are better, because they have issues in the translation as well. And the gist of the story and what's written in the Bible isn't really changed. They've just put their markers in as, and that's exactly what he calls it, Mason Marks. So that they can come back in the end time and say, See, we have more knowledge than this, and we had control of that, and we've had control of this knowledge since the beginning. And It's going to be used as part of their deceptions, and then they're going to convert the Bible to an allegorical interpretation and into the mysteries where everything is defined by allegory. So I know that was a fairly long answer, but I wanted to give some detail to that.
0: Excellent. We really appreciate it. Our next question comes from Leo Key. If we are mixed with the enemy bloodlines, how many people do you think are, and how do we deal with that?
1: Well, um, first of all, I think uh, there is a, a, a mixing of Raphaim with uh, uh, and other kinds of giants, possibly with humankind. We don't know what the DNA markers are or the Gina Isis is, but I'm sure there's a fair bit of that sort of genes that are out there. And it's the genes that might produce the bloodline or the type of the blood because genes produce those types of things. And what we do know is Rh negative is, has been inserted into the human um, blood types from just being positive. We've got the, the the matching negative types. We do know royal families like the Windsors are are O negative, and they're overwhelmingly Rh negative bloodlines out of the pure blood families. And so, if we use that, and again, um, understand how I'm building this. That there's a bit of you know ifs and what ifs, um, but because they look at the RH negative, the royal bloodlines do, as being their marker, as well as the gene of Isis and the spark of divine and a few other terms that they like to use for different aspects of their markers, Um, there's a reasonable bet that we can sort of use that as something to make a basis for answering this question on. So in the world, about 15% of the bloodlines are RH negative. Um, so, and there's a heavier concentration that is in northern France that gets as high as northern to southern France down towards, make that, not northern France, make that western France and southern France as you approach into Spain, that'll get you, you know, 20 to 25 percent Um in terms of RH negative percentages. And then the highest percentages in the world are the Basques, who believe they uh, were survivors from the antediluvian world and settled in northern uh, Spain, and then settled uh, and created post-diluvian civilizations in Egypt, and Scythia, where uh, polytheist uh, mythology talks about the giants escaping Tartarus to show up after the flood And um, in Sumeria. So they believe they're the most purest of the negative bloodlines, and they run somewhere, depending on who you're talking to, 50 to 80% Rh negative. So those are the only metrics that we kind of have. Now, all of this doesn't mean anything for salvation. If you inherit uh, Rh negative or their gene somehow, that has nothing to do with salvation only your faith in jesus and in god and the holy spirit and if you accept jesus and god as your savior and in your god then jesus's sacrifice will cover all of the sins of the world except for blasphemies against the holy spirit and seemingly as that relates to the mark of the beast because they are not forgiven um, and they will spend their time in, in the lake of fire uh, those who take the mark, so something to do with violations of creation. So, but if you, if you, if you have that innocently, uh, not by choice, then it has nothing to do with salvation. Only your faith does. And I also believe that if somebody was purebred Raphaim or Nephilim, if they had accepted Jesus um, and God as their God, and of course, I know Jesus. Um, um, you know, only came along a couple thousand years ago. Um, but if the Nephilim had followed God as Abraham did with faith in God and followed his ways, I think they would be saved as well. But whether or not any did or not, we don't know. Um, and again, I leave judgment up, up, up to God. So I think uh, it's not a salvation issue. Uh, I think you have to choose Satan, and I think you have to choose Antichrist. You have to choose the fallen angels and to follow them um, and to deny Jesus and deny God. So I don't think physical characteristics Mm -hmm. have anything to do with salvation.
0: Amen to that. Uh, Yeah, I was spending the last day of the conference. Uh, We actually stayed up late. At night, and Rob Skiba and a bunch of us joined together, and we were all just basically having a Q and A Q&A with Rob, and he said basically the same thing. Uh, but one thing that was really interesting, he was talking about the Shroud of Turin, and apparently the there were blood tests done on the Shroud of Turin, and it came back R H negative. That's pretty, yep, pretty well, interesting.
1: Very, 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 very interesting, but. Um, and there was, and there is RH negative blood that would be in Israel, but I'm not convinced it's part of the Davidic line, which Mary would have, you know, which mm-hmm. was from, um, and we'll have to wait and see whether or not that that is, uh, actually the, the shroud of, of, of Jesus or not. So, mm-hmm. and, or that's the real shroud that, uh, Jesus had. So, um, I, I, would like to think it is, um, but, uh, if if that blood is Rh negative, that might lead me away from that.
0: Excellent. Well, we appreciate your perspective and sharing all this information. Our next question comes from Facts Not Fiction. If we know day one of the tribulation starts on a peace deal, then we know in seven years God returns. So how is it possible for the enemy to fake a timeline unless they set up a fake peace deal ahead of time?
1: Um, well, yeah, you 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 have to uh, you have to take all of that into in to account, and there will be a number of peace deals along the way, and so you know one of the things that is uh, happening right now is is you have President Trump creating some peace treaties, so there'll be more of this, and as it goes, more and more people will be. Um, you know, looking to that. But the peace that Antichrist is going to bring in, will, prom- will he'll promise after that Revelation 9 war and the Gog War, the Joel 1 and 2 war. That's the peace and safety that he's going to be promising coming back as Antichrist. And he's going to use that war as the counterfeit Armageddon. In, in sort of my understanding. And so that will be uh, uh, his act to bring in the millennium as the Messiah. So that means then there probably should be some peace deals that people are going to follow before that, right? And Antichrist is going to be offering, you know, peace to the world that starts the, the last seven years as one of the negotiators. So we need to be very, very careful not to overemphasize one aspect of prophecy as it conflicts as it might conflict with other prophecy because it all has to intermesh so how they're going to set up the 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 whole thing is they're going to have there's going to be wars that are happening at the end of the birth pangs and then you've got wars that are going on it, the seal openings, and then you've got the, the war of the trumpets, and then you've got Armageddon. So you've got these series of wars that are going to be happening. They can pick and choose anyone they want of that, that period. And, uh, but to, to deceive Christians with the peace deal probably doesn't happen. But they deceive people with the other Aspects of the counterfeit, of the false prophets, of the false resurrection, of the counterfeit Armageddon, of uh, uh, Satan and Antichrist appearing like they're the good people, and that the Christians are the evil people, that the God that they make out God to be the evil one of, of the of the Bible. So it's not the peace deal that. That uh, fools people. In fact, I think Christians are going to be pointing to the one that uh, negotiates that start of the last seven years as being Antichrist, and so fervently that they are going to be sought out as enemies of the state because he's going to be this rising star in the reign of Babylon and the reign of the ten kings that comes out of this this covenant. And they're going to be persecuted. And that is the tribulation saints that we see in Revelation 7 in the first three and a half years. And we know Michael doesn't prevent uh, the Empire, Ten Nation Empire, from rising and coming to power he only prevents antichrist so if he's the restrainer he's gone by the midpoint and then also comes back shortly after to fight with the war in heaven and that's when he stands in daniel 12 at the three and a half year point or shortly thereafter when that battle takes place. And we also know that the Holy Spirit, if that's the restrainer, it's still here in the first three and a half years because uh, Mark and Luke are talking about the wisdom that's going to be provided to the tribulation saints, and that's defined as the Holy Spirit in, in the book of Mark that's providing that wisdom and testimony to testify against this world order. So Christians aren't going to be fooled. But the rest of the world is going to be fooled. And that's who they're trying to deceive. But as you get moving forward in that last seven years, the deceptions that convince the world will be so great, it will even deceive the elect, if that were possible, And, of course, it is because Jesus said even the elect will be deceived as you're moving forward into that last seven years. So it's not necessarily the peace deal, I guess, is the short answer.
0: That's a really good point. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Next question comes from Seth Smith. How is preterism not a valid interpretation of sacred texts?
1: Well, I'm not here to... Uh, diminish anybody's approach to uh, scripture and and prophecy. I mean, I have some disciplines that I've um, laid out in the show several times, so I won't go through all of them because I know we're running short of time. But one of the premises that I do is I don't leave out inconvenient passages. And generally when I'm debating with Uh, people who follow preterism, is is they leave out passages that they don't like. Like they say, there's no last seven years and the abomination has already happened. Well, if the abomination has already happened, then, you know, we haven't seen Jesus come back and we haven't seen a sign in the sky. And clearly, Daniel 9.26 says, and unto the end of wars and desolations and you take end back to hebrew that's the hebrew word kets and that means the end time and then that's followed in daniel 9 7 with the confirming of the covenant which is the end of those wars and desolations so that's the end time and they like to tend to want to just set that aside and then when you show them uh, daniel 12 uh, then they say, well, you know, that's that's for the church, that's not for Israel, and so they're they're taking things and moving them around and ignoring uh, prophecies and revelation and elsewhere. I won't go through the a complete dissertation as to all of the ones that they leave out, but that's the key thing to look out for is is they are leaving out uh, prophecy and any approach. My advice is for anybody that looks at an approach that is going to cherry pick um, prophecy, you should be skeptical on that. If they can't put it all together, then you need to challenge them about these uh, prophecies that are left out. And they use outside sources, like in Josephus, and which is an absolutely, not that I just like just so Josephus, but they... They use that as the sign that was seen over the head of Jerusalem at that time, which is absolutely crazy because, again, we didn't have Jesus come back at that time. But seemingly in preterism, they say that he did. Um, But clearly, uh, there's three and a half years and there's seven years, as Daniel 9.27 lays out, and that it matches up with the other allegories and the other prophecies about three and a half years in Daniel, the 1260 days. Um, in, uh, Revelation 12, the midpoint that Daniel also talks about and the reign of the Antichrist and Daniel 10 that we talked about, all of it comes together perfectly if you let it, but for me, I, I, I don't rely on, um, an approach that doesn't want to recognize and fit in all of the applications. And I've not yet been in a debate where when I start pointing out where that argument is wrong, it always inevitably gets into a chase the rabbit argument. Then it's so, like, well, what about this verse? And then what about this verse? And I handle that, and I handle that, and I handle that. Eventually, they either tire out or are just saying, you know, you've got enough here that you need <laughs> to go back and, and chew on before we continue this conversation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Uh, we have an uncle who's a preterist as well, and I always just point him to, you know, the end of Revelation where it says there will be no more pain, no more suffering. You know, and like, um, you know, let me just pinch you real quick. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, very well put. Thank you for that. Uh, next question comes from Gad the Seer. How did God scatter the nations at Babel? Was this done supernaturally, or did he just give them instructions to travel by foot?
1: I think both. <laughs> you know, at, for the first thing is that, um, you know, Tower of Babel is destroyed. So there's going to be some destruction and there's going to be fear. I think there's also an edict from God and probably through the angels to disperse. You know, like the people were told to disperse in, in day six of, of Genesis. And then as as they were instructed to disperse and, and fill the earth after after the flood, I think there would be instructions that were, uh, were given. But... When you look at that from a Hebrew perspective, it doesn't say that uh, he just that he asked them. Like, it literally says he scattered them. So whether or not he scared them or encouraged them or probably all of the above and pushed them to leave, and it was also made it easier other than the destruction would be the confusion of the languages because nobody could understand each other, right? So they're not going to sit there and talk to each other. They're just going to go on their way because there's too many languages to learn.
0: Excellent point. Again, our next question comes from James. Can you talk about the sons of Anak and if they are the Anunnaki?
1: Well, there's certainly a lot of similarities with the um, sort of enunciation or pronunciation of Anaki and uh, Anak. But again, that's a transliteration from the Hebrew, so it gets closer if we go back to Hebrew. So Anak is H6061, and it's pronounced Anak, A-W-N-A-W-K, so Anak. So very similar to anaki. And then 6062 is the plural that we would uh, either see as an im or an iay or an ah uh, suffix for plural. In this case, it's the uh, anaki, which is A uh, A N A Q I, you know, trans, sort of transliterated. But that would be now pronounced anaki. So you have... A very similar pronunciation of the plural of Anak, that is uh, coming out of Hebrew, and you can see the uh, Anakim as An Anaki goes back to Hebrew as in Deuteronomy two, Deuteronomy one, Deuteronomy nine, and several other verses in, in the Old Testament. It's not just Anak that's used. There'll be Anakim, and Anakim is the one that goes back to Anaki. But other than that, I have not found a direct connection etymologically or transliteration-wise that they're the same, other than we know the Anunnaki produced Anunnaki giants. So there's probably a relationship there, but that tends to be, the Anunnaki tends to be um, antediluvian or before the flood. The Anakim are in Deuteronomy two, Raphaim from giants, Rafa Raphaim. So they don't seem to be from the same period or from the same um, uh, sort of etymological base, unless of course uh, giants survived the flood, which is my second position, but not my more favored position. Who I think might be more closely related, and who knows, maybe the Anaki, the Anak, of, uh, who come from Arbus, that name doesn't come from an Anunnaki sort of patronymical name, but who knows, maybe they accepted that as their name of their tribe because uh, they knew the history of the Anunnaki before the flood. What we do know, though, is we get the Cadmonites. Kad- which are the Kadmoni, as you take that back to uh, Hebrew, and that's 6935 and 6931. Uh, and uh, that are, that is defined as the Eastern people. And these are giants, as it shows up in Genesis 15 and 18, with the Kenesites and the Kenites. Um, and again, they don't go back to the table of nations either. So I'm wondering whether or not that those are some of the Sumerian giants that, because they're called the Eastern people. So, but that's about all I have in terms of trying to make the connections to the Anunnaki.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, So our next question comes from Instant Faith. Will your new book cover the entire seven years of Revelation and also include a discussion of all related writings that cover this period? Uh,
1: My first book uh, does not cover the, the seven years. The book I'm writing won't cover every detail of the last seven years. Um, that would be a huge book because there's just so much information and in explaining how everything comes together. I will be writing, hopefully, uh, prophecy books You know, for, for a period of time, and I will be getting more and more into um, putting that chronology into place and a lot of that chronology I'll ta- I'm taking on in my current book so and that's some of the changes I wanted to make is that I did a complete restart on the book uh, you know, last year to say no that's not the direction I want to go I want to make it more towards Christians on this book
0: excellent well we definitely look forward to that one our next question comes from Sean Do you believe Hebrews 8 through 13 explains commandments such as eating unclean meat obsolete?
1: Well, you know, that is explaining the new covenant. And so uh, what we do know is a couple of things in terms of how that affects what we eat. So the first thing I'd like to point to would be uh, the book of Acts. Um, when James um, sets the law down for the difference between um, the people of Judah and the Gentiles. And for them, they were still to continue, the Judeans were still to continue with the Torah law, even though they would become Christians. But there's a reason for that. That's because they were created as a nation of priests separated by God with a special uh, uh, destiny and commission and a mission to do. And so they are a little unique, but the Gentiles were completely um, freed up of most of the eating uh, regulations, you know, except for sacrificing to idols and strangling and drinking of blood like the most uh, corrupt of the things that you can do sort of with food and so we need to understand that 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 is part of that new covenant to bring in the Gentiles in the in the time of the Gentiles I'm not going to talk about what goes forward but until I cover this point off about Matthew 15 11 uh, because I think that's part of this new covenant as well is, and Jesus talks about in Matthew 15 about that you're not defiled of what enters into you by your mouth, as in food, but what comes out. And I think that really is the essence of the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. And and that if we are led by the spirit and we are forgiven uh, of our sins by the sacrifice of Jesus and that uh, we are not going to have that law ruling over us, but by the spirit, if we have the spirit, we will be led to fulfill the law, then that becomes a cycle and then as we move forward as all of the bride is brought together in the end time i think you're going to see us all as priests of god uh, going forward and i'm sure we'll have uh regulations of food going forward as we as as, as people move forward into the millennium and that um We should also know, though, that I would expect that the world would be not as sinful. So I think there's going to be a certain another circumstance that goes on. But certainly as we move into eternity, one would presume that we're going to be spiritual beings, but we don't know what happens after that for is there going to be a physical world as well? Probably, but we don't know how that sort of all plays out down the road. But in terms of Hebrew eight, I think that is referencing sort of all of that and bringing that together, yes.
0: Excellent. All right. To the last question that is on our pre-made list for tonight comes from Troy. I've heard mention about seven sacred mountains, like where the Watchers may have congregated. Do you have any information
1: on that? Yeah, well, you have... You know a standard of seven in polytheism uh, for especially for the lower gods right not the parent gods but the lower gods when I talk about the lower gods that would be gods like Zeus and uh, Poseidon and there's a top seven of them um, there's a there's some other ones but there's a there's a top seven and you've got the same thing with Anki and Onlil and everything around the world in the second tier gods and In polytheist mythology, there's this talk about these holy mountains, and, you know, the Chinese talk, you know, more about five, but the standard is more like seven or ten. Seven tends to be the standard. So when I bring that all together, and then I look at what the Book of Enoch talks about, Um, and again, I know we can't take that as complete gospel, but it runs about 99% accurate, I think, Um, and I look at... Enoch um, chapter 32, Enoch chapter 25, Enoch chapter 18, it talks about the seven mountains uh, associated with the earth and, and and the angels of that time. And I think there was seven mountains that were wholly to the top seven. I think they might be mountains like Olympus, mountains like Herman, mountains like uh, uh, Himavat in India, maybe Fuji in Japan. I don't know what all of those seven are, um, but they talk about that as a number where I think there was at least seven um antediluvian civilizations that had a head uh, governing angel watcher over top of those that all reported to satan so i think there's a top seven in that sort of whole hierarchy as that sort of comes down and that kind of makes sense in terms as i look at what the bible talks about on angelic hierarchy and uh, what we know about uh, the book of enoch and then looking at what other sources might suggest as well
0: excellent thank you so much for answering those questions i guess we I have nine minutes left. Maybe we can get uh, through a couple of the live questions. Our first one comes from MJM. When someone dies, what are the possible locations that the body, spirit, and soul can go? And from this point, what happens to these components when someone is resurrected?
1: Yeah, so there's three components. There is the, uh, the spirit, um, the soul, and the body. And the soul and the spirit are, are of the earth but and the spirit comes from god Um, and so my understanding when i read scripture it says over and over and over and over and over is that when we die uh, we go to um, we go to sleep and the sleep and the dead know nothing and even when we're talking about rapture those are, who are still asleep are going to to be resurrected. So it seems to be consistent. Um, and I know I know the one parable that Jesus talks about in terms of uh, you know somebody going you know down to the underworld. But that's a parable. There's a message there. That's what he's teaching, not. The, the the fable that the Judaic people were familiar with at that time. He's communicating in a way that they would understand. So you have to be careful of parables that you, you take out what he's really saying and he'll generally tell you that always at the end, end end of the parable. So the dead don't really go anywhere but what we do have is Sheol, Sheol and Hades which are you know, the same place and we have the abyss which is in Hades, and we have the Lake of Fire. And that's again when I talked earlier about. It's unfortunate that the English translators conflate all of those into into one term as being hell. And so the abyss is located in the underworld, which is Hades, okay, and or shell And so that's the place and the location where the fallen angels were imprisoned in in the underworld in the abyss. And that's also where you have the prisons in Ezekiel 31 and 32, where you've got the spirits of the Rephaim and Nephilim, the worst of the terrible ones, imprisoned down in the sides of the abyss. And so the only beings that are wandering the earth are demons that aren't in the abyss, in the prisons. And you've got the angels who weren't put into the abyss that are fallen but weren't impassioned. Those are the ones that are wandering and can go back probably between the dimensions through portals um, as, you know, between the underworld and or the, uh, the physical world. Um, and what we do know is the... Demons are not allowed to go into heaven, although we do know some of the fallen angels are allowed to go into heaven because certainly Satan is permitted to go into the third heaven, which is the spiritual realm and dimension, because he's seen going up there with the sons of God in um, Job uh, 1 6 and 2 1. And so I know a lot of people disagree with me on, on this and that uh, God can raise anybody up. Who he wants what he wants, and I leave that as open to a possibility. And certainly, when the graves were open, where when Jesus was resurrected, there was probably some taken to heaven there. But those ones are all in heaven, those are the saints. Uh, the rest of the, the rest sleep though, and except for the demons that were physical entities born of this earth.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Gary, and for all of the awesome wisdom that you've shared. Uh, if you don't mind, would you let all of the listeners know where they could find a copy of your book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy, and how they can get in touch with you?
1: Yes. go The best place is to go to my website, thegenesis6conspiracy.com, with the number sixconspiracy.com. On there, I have got an email. You can contact me uh, to ask me questions, or if I mention a document or on a subject, ask me whether I've got um, a document on that subject. If I do, I will send it to you if you ask for it by subject matter. I also have a buy now page on there so you can link in to get a signed copy directly from me if you like or link over and get the Kindle version or go over to Amazon and to Barnes & Noble. So lots of options to, to buy it uh, off my website or you can go to any online site that'll have it and you can also have it ordered into your bookstore. It's distributed by Bookmasters. Uh, best way second best way to get a hold of me is on Facebook under Gary Wayne post a question on my timeline or send me a message on messenger and you can do the same thing on Twitter at Gary Wayne 63 at Gary 63
0: I gotta say that is amazing that you have so many ways uh, for people to reach out to you it, it is so time-consuming and I, I know because we get dozens of emails a day I just can't imagine you know opening your timeline up for Q&A constantly. I mean, that that's amazing. We really appreciate your heart to share. And uh, definitely we appreciate you joining us tonight and appreciate all the listeners for joining for this 17th AMA. We'll be back the first Monday of next month of November at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for our 18th episode of Ask Me Anything with author and researcher Gary Wayne. Uh, Gary, if you don't mind, would you like to close us out in prayer? Sure.
1: Father in heaven, we thank you for providing this opportunity to get together and commune and to exchange information and to glorify your name and your word and your scripture and all the great things that you have done for us and continue to provide for us. and Particularly we want to thank you for creating this type of opportunity to commune based in the age of COVID where so many people are restricted and can't get to church and have no other ways of communicating. And so we really want to thank you for permitting us to be able to do this and hopefully edify and help people to understand your scripture, uh, what has happened, what will happen, and then, we pray that you help people to, that you bless people to go out and spread that information and be with them and send the Holy Spirit to have them explain to others so that all might hear your word and be, and be saved so that all the names of the book will be fulfilled. And we pray these things, Father, in the name of our savior the word jesus who sits at your right hand side and testifies to you for us and for all of the saints we also pray in the name of the holy spirit and your great and holy name amen
0: amen thank you so much again for joining gary and thank you everybody for joining for this show we love you very much and blessings to you shalom
2: every day questions arise
1: Are the stories in the Bible true?
2: What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming
1: witnesses? Which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible.
2: Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to?
0: Join us the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Endeavor Freedom YouTube channel for our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.